Morning, church. My name is Travis Bond. I serve as the senior pastor here. And if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. Paul's first letter to the pastor Timothy in Ephesus. And while you are turning there, a quick update from the, uh, from the week. So as already been mentioned, our missions team is safely back. Praise God for that. We're going to, uh, I think, hear from them next Sunday. And then also, for those of you who weren't here, uh, Monday night we had our special meeting of the congregation. Um, there was a, a great spirit in here. Uh, bottom line, unanimous vote to purchase our second piece of property for this year. Um, And this is really cause for a lot of joy and celebration because after really decades of waiting on the Lord's time, uh, we are acquiring a couple of properties. Um, Guests, it's on this street over here, uh, just behind the church um, adjacent. Uh, We'll have three contiguous properties. Uh, The long-term hope in doing this is that that these properties can become part of the puzzle that allows our church to continue to grow, Lord willing, um, expand the parking, which we need, um, maybe expand the building, and hopefully expand the reach of the gospel into a region of the country that desperately needs it. Amen? The, the short-term hope is that in the next maybe six or seven months, we will be taking the church offices from across the street. We're going to be relocating them over here onto this side of the street because that's going to become a much larger road and parking's pretty rough over there anyway. So we're going to put it over here in 11 Slocum, which of course requires uh, no small amount of renovations to that house to make it appropriate for offices for a staff of currently eight. And so you can imagine, um, you know, going through doing the walk through and thinking, you know, how is it all going to be configured and we should probably move a wall here and knock down a wall there and we're going to need to swap out that window. And at some point you start thinking to yourself, you know, what would be really great here is if we, if we just like were to come up with the plan before we start swinging the hammer. That would be fantastic if we, if we decided in advance where stuff was going to go and how we were going to do it before we just went in did stuff. We should have like a blueprint or something. And can I say that if it makes sense for church offices, how much more so for the church of God? And so that's, uh, that's the series that we're working through here uh, in First Timothy. We're calling it Blueprint, God's Design for Our Church. This is going to be a six-part sermon series through all of November and then a little bit of December. And for those of you who were not with us last Sunday, let me do a quick catch up for you. Hopefully you're already in 1 Timothy. Flip forward just a couple of chapters now to chapter 3. Um, this is the center of the book, chapter 3, midway through the chapter. I call it the center of the book um, because uh, it has a couple of verses here that kind of explain the key to the whole letter. Chapter 3, middle of verse 14. Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so it makes sense, right? If I'm building a house... I would really like an architect to tell me, ah, you're going to need a support beam right there. Or you need to pour the footer right here. 
Likewise, if we're building a church, I'd prefer it be God to tell us how we ought to behave in that church. So that's the point of our six weeks in this letter. Now flip back a page or so to chapter 2. And you can remember then from our study in chapter 1 that what's going on here is that false teachers have begun to penetrate into this new church, uh, fairly new church in Ephesus. Uh, False teachers, um, uh, they're stirring up trouble, they're causing confusion in the body. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, details how we are to conduct ourselves, which is not a matter of marginal importance, but of utmost importance priority. Because at MCC, we want to let the Word of God direct the worship of God. Amen? I really feel like that was an amen phrase. (laughs) We want to let the Word of God direct the worship of God, which means that we're going to follow God's Word wherever it takes us. Amen? All right. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1. Hear now the very word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings and who all and who excuse me, and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach, or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, that seems pretty clear. (laughs) So, at this time, ladies, if you could please pass your jewelry to the center aisles. We're going to go ahead and have the ushers collect that up. You know, every now and then, 
a sermon that we preach here, it'll get interrupted and it'll get cut short for one reason or another. Maybe there's a health issue in the congregation or something along those lines. I don't know, maybe this morning could be one of those days. (laughs) If anyone's inclined to pull the fire alarm, again, today would be a great option for that. Because over the years, this chapter, shockingly, now that we've read it, and particularly the second half of this chapter, has been the source of all kinds of fierce debate and rampant confusion. By the way, this is why we're inclined here to often preach through entire books of the Bible so we can't skip the hard parts. We'll get to the hard parts, but let's at least warm up with the easy parts. talk about praying. Everyone's for praying, right? All right. If you want to take some notes, first header that I wrote down is simply prayer because God's blueprint for the church that he's given us here includes verse one, supplications, prayers, intercessions, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Why do we need to offer that for all people? Well, it's because of verse five, because there's one God. There's one God who desires that all be saved, right? So, so one God, monotheism drives mission. Monotheism drives mission. And the image that's being painted at the start of the passage here really is beautiful, right? Verse one, all kinds of churches are to pray for all kinds of people. Every ethnicity, every generation, every socioeconomic background, every status, and that explicitly includes, verse two, kings and all who are in high positions. If we're, uh, if we're connected to one another on social media, then maybe you've noticed, I don't know, that your pastor, this pastor, not particularly inclined to uh, mess around with politics on Facebook. For me, I don't know, it just seems to generate a lot more heat than it does light. Um, This is not a biblical mandate. This is my own position. You are free to do what you see fit there. Um, But can I suggest this, based on the beginning of this passage, can I suggest, what if every time you offered a political thought on social media, you preceded your post with prayer for one of our kings, or those in high positions. I mean, for goodness sakes, where did Christians ever get the idea that we don't have to pray for the people that we don't like? And particularly in the realm of politics. Maybe, maybe it's always been this way, but particularly in the realm of politics today. Folks, if I spend all my time on my feet complaining about them, I don't see how I can possibly have time to be on my knees praying for them. Better to let the word of God direct the worship of God. We let, we're a church that says we want to let the word of God direct the worship of God, which conveniently moves us into the second header that I wrote down, posture. First header, prayer. Second header, posture. I'm in verse eight here. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting 
holy hands without anger or quarreling. See, in the next verse, after this one, it's going to become pretty clear that there were at least some women in the church who were wearing stuff that was kind of sketchy. In this verse, it's pretty clear that there were men in the church who were carping with one another. This is not to say that women don't struggle with bickering any more than it is to say that men don't struggle with drawing attention to ourselves or our wealth. But in this particular church here in Ephesus, it seems that the men were the bigger issue on this, bickering and quarreling. And Paul says, enough of that. Stop it. Replace the squabbling with prayer. He says, I want you to lift up holy hands. What's that mean? Um, I think it means that we are, um, or rather that, that we can't pray with a clean heart if we're holding sin with dirty hands. I think there's also something to be said here in verse 8 about the physical posture of our worship. And I say that not just because of what the verse here says, but because some knowledge of the Old Testament, you see constantly God's people kneeling, raising their hands, sometimes actually forehead to the ground, right? In that uh, prostrate position, uh, a sign of submission and honor to God. Now, if we try and do that here in this sanctuary, you're liable to whack your forehead off of the pew in front of you. But this whole hand-raising thing, like, I think we can do that. In fact, can I just do a quick check here? Aside from those of you with arthritis or rotator cuff issues, just go ahead, just sneak it up there, your right hand. Go ahead, put it up. I know, sweat stains, it's okay. I wore, I wore dark for your benefit, not mine. Now, now, just keep it up there. Let's go left hand too. Yes, we can do it. We can put hands in the air in this church. This is amazing. Even in the early service. Late service, they're a little better than we are. Early service, we can do it too. Hands up. Can I suggest that there is actually a biblical directive here? Verse 8 to raise our hands in prayer and in song, which is largely prayer with a beat. Are we willing to let the word of God direct the worship of God? Now listen, I'm I'm being kind of fun with it, right? But don't raise your hands during a praise song because you think it makes you look more spiritual. That's stupid. (laughs) Likewise, Don't not raise your hands when the Spirit prompts you to do so because of what someone else may or may not think. That's that's little better. When God's people, listen, when we lift our voices, and we're pretty good at that, and our hands, we got a little ways to go with that, but when we lift our voices or our hands, Do you understand the way that that speaks to the guest or the unbeliever 
in our midst of the unity of God's people. That we exalt one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And it's precisely that, the honor of God and the unity of God's people, that moves us then into the final section of this text, um, which we will call propriety. Uh, because I needed another P word, and that's the best I could come up with. Prayer, then posture, now we have propriety. So after addressing in verse 8, the men, Paul says in verse 9, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Remember, Ephesus was a church forming out of a non-Christian culture. That's different from MCC, which in the 21st century, we exist in a post-Christian culture. Non-Christian versus post-Christian. Those are different. In our case, it carries along with it some unique challenges, but also some benefits. For instance, here at MCC, um, a hyper-sexualized dress code is typically not a real big problem for us on Sunday mornings. Ephesus, though, this was a church being born out of a highly sexualized culture, like America, maybe even worse, I don't know. But they didn't have any Christian ethic within their history or their foundation. So for them, remember, this gospel stuff, this is like, ah, out of nowhere. First and maybe second generation now, hearing the way that the word of God directs the worship of God, hearing the way that the gospel, Christ's death and crucifixion, affects even the way that I dress or draw attention to myself and the way that I relate to other genders. They're all learning this. First generation. And so, Paul is using a reference to clothes and jewelry here as illustrative of the immodesty and indiscretion that has no place amidst God's people. What he's saying is this, if I can paraphrase. He's saying, listen, ladies, don't dress up so people will marvel at your body. Don't dress up so people will marvel at your money. But conduct yourselves in such a way that people will marvel at your God. And that's the whole overriding principle in the letter. Everything in this church is to be done for edification, for the building up of the people of God. Phrased in contemporary terms, short skirts, short dresses, short shorts, all fall short of the biblical ideal. So if you kept your Bibles open and you look at verse 9a, that gives us the principle, modesty and self-control. Verse 9b gives application of the principle in that time and place. Braids and gold and such were clearly an issue because flashy clothes and expensive jewelry are an ill fit for a broken and a contrite heart. Okay? 
So, so far, none of this is too painful, right? Mm, Gets a little harder by verse 11. (laughs) Hearing no fire alarm, I'll go ahead and pass on then. (laughs) Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So the difficulties in Timothy's church, they weren't confined to men and their anger or women and their wealth. Because for those of you who took the time this past week to read through this whole letter, knowing that we're going to be in it for six weeks, then you already know that by the time we get to chapter five, it's going to become quite clear that there's a subset of women in this church who are teaching falsely and they're gossiping. And they're stirring up trouble, which gives a pay occasion for Paul to mention that when the church is gathered together, a woman's role is not to be that of an authoritative teaching position, i.e. preaching. We'll let that one sink in for a moment. And then we'll point out that Paul is obviously not forbidding women to speak or to teach in various church contexts, because doing so is commended elsewhere. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul himself gives instruction about how women are to pray and prophesy when the church is gathered together. In Acts 18, Aquila and his wife take a young preacher by the name of Oh, Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila, they take Apollos under their wing and together they instruct him. And I pray, little parentheses here, that men in this church would be so well served by godly women in this church. In Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, Women are given the gift of prophecy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we learn about Timothy's own mother and grandmother instructing him in faith. And all, all, that's just a sampling, right? And then you step beyond the New Testament age, and please don't tell Katharina von Bora, Luther's wife, or uh, Elizabeth Elliot, or Lottie Moon, or Amy Carmichael, or in our own day, ladies like Beth Moore, or Priscilla Shire, Please don't tell all these ladies that they are to be sidelined by the church. For my part, I can tell you, I have learned more from my wife, Sarah, than I have been taught by any other person on the face of the planet. So, if women are encouraged to share their gifts in the church, what does verse 11 and 12 mean? Glad you asked. Notice in verse 12, there is not a full stop after teach. I do not permit a woman to teach, period. That's not what it says. This is good news. Since a little while ago, you learned that my adult class co-teacher tonight will be a, wait for it, woman. (laughs) So what verse 12 does is it's holding teaching in tandem with the exercise of church authority. That's what it says. Now you're a sensible church. 
and you're a bright church. So you tell me, where? Or should I say, with whom in the church do you see the primary roles of teaching and spiritual authority held together? Pastors, the elders, which is kind of the same thing. So just talking about elders. Well, I don't know, Trev. <laughs> but where do you actually see the word elder? The very next paragraph. Chapter 3. And that's, that's where he's taking this whole, you know, we don't get to chapter 3 till next week. He gets it to, in the next breath. Chapter 3 states as a prevailing quality for elders that they are able to teach and able to lead. Or you can flip to chapter 5, and it actually might be worth your time to flip forward a couple pages here to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and look at verse 17 if you would. Let the elders who rule well, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This is the definition of an elder's role. Faithful teaching and godly authority held together. And in God's economy, that's a role that appears to be reserved for men. Well, Trev, (laughs) I'm not sure I like that very much. That's okay. My self-esteem is not tied up in your acceptance of the text (laughs) because I'm not the chef, folks. I don't cook the food. I just, I'm the waiter. My job is to bring the food. Hot when necessary. Bottom line, at MCC, we do not ignore verses 11 and 12. I, I'm amazed, amazed when I go out and I look at sermon series that can be found. Chapter two is just often not there. <laughs> it's just skipped right over. And I'm not gonna do that to you because you deserve more than that. Okay? Sola Scriptura. We got to do something with verses 11 and 12. Likewise, we do not interpret verses 11 and 12 so woodenly as to ignore all of the other passages that talk about women exercising their teaching gifts. We do believe, however, that consistent with the rest of the New Testament, this passage reinforces the complementary roles of men and women. That they're equal in dignity. It's very important. That they're equal in value. It's hugely important. But distinct gender roles. And we hold to this because we want to let the scripture be our blueprint. We let the word of God direct the worship of God. By the way, the argument Mm, all this was just for that culture, Trav, that was just for that. I, I don't think it was. And the reason is because Paul doesn't ground this in a temporary cultural context. That's an easy way to get around this stuff, but it's not intellectually honest or exegetically faithful because Paul doesn't ground what he's saying here in the cultural context. He explicitly grounds it, verse 13, In Genesis, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
Biblical Interpretation 101. Whenever you see something in Scripture grounded in the creation narrative, that means that what's being taught was not merely cultural, but it was meant to be universal. Chapter 2 applies to every church everywhere. Which takes us to this final cryptic reference to childbirth in the final verse. Which, that one might be related to Genesis as well. Um, I'm at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Uh, When you go to seminary, this is the kind of verse that professors torment you with to show you how much you need them. (laughs) Verse 15 does not mean that women will be eternally saved by bearing a child. Not all women can bear children. Also, this would undermine the doctrines of sola fide, sola gratia, and solus Christus. And it would leave us men in a very precarious situation. (laughs) Ultimately then, what does verse 15 mean? Mm, God only knows. (laughs) This might be a reference to the Genesis 3 prophecy of the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. We call that the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, if you know your, uh, your Old Testament. This might be that. Maybe. Probably not. I'm more inclined to believe that verse 15 here means that women will be kept safe from wrongly seizing unique male roles by instead embracing unique female roles. In this case, the ability to bear children. Why do I interpret it this way? Well, some of these false teachers in Ephesus, remember the, 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 this early form of Gnosticism moving into the church? Some of these false teachers in Ephesus were propounding the idea that to be married or to have children was inferior, that it was spiritually less than. And Paul is pushing back. And he's saying in contemporary language, if you're a full-time homemaker, that's not pitiful. That's glorious. You remember the old rabbinic prayer, God, thank you for not making me a slave or a Gentile or a woman. And then you look at Jesus and the women who were gathered around him and they were taught. (laughs) I mean, that alone, right? They were taught in that culture and they were encouraged to teach. They were empowered. They were elevated. This was incredibly countercultural for Jesus. And yet, that never meant that gender was abolished in the church. See, ever since the Garden of Eden, there's a reason that Paul in verses 13 and 14, he sends us back to the Garden of Eden. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, there's been this role reversal that happened there. Eve was deceived, verse 14. She took the leadership role and then she tempted her husband. Meanwhile, Adam forfeited the leadership role and he joined her in her sin. It was all in the garden. And it wasn't until much later 
in a second garden called Gethsemane when all that they did begins to come untrue. So there's a, there was a role reversal in Eden. Adam stood in that garden and he silently failed his bride. And much later, we have Jesus kneeling in a garden, giving his life for his bride. The first Adam brought death and sin. The second Adam offers forgiveness and life. So all this gender stuff in chapter 2 that we get heartburn about is not about power. It's about dying. Dying to self. And so we pray. God, we see through a glass darkly. But God, help us. Let the word of God direct the worship of God. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.